Hello, and welcome to another edition of Why Wasn't It Better. I'm Patrick Darms. And I'm Anton Paras. And this is the podcast where we choose a movie that was considered both highly anticipated and somehow disappointing, a movie that simply should have been better, and then we tell you why. Yeah, very well said, Patrick. Should we start with our any updates that we want to share with the audience today? Yeah, we can start with some admin. Uh, just want to thank all the listeners who've given us the feedback that we've received so far. We've only recorded a handful of episodes, but the feedback that we've received has been valuable and we're trying to take as much into consideration as we can, whether we follow it or whether we ignore it, you'll find out. As always, you can contact us at wwibpodcast at gmail.com. We also made a Twitter. This is a huge deal. You can follow us on Twitter at wwibpodcast. Whether or not we respond or whether we know how to use it, that's a whole nother matter. I think the fact that we have one is pretty groundbreaking. Huge, huge, huge shout outs. I think that Patrick put it very well put together in terms of how we take everyone's feedback, except I, for one, like to take the feedback, print it out, and then try to shoot threes into trash cans. Just kidding. We love the feedback. Please share it. We want to be better. And of course, put together in a great experience for your listening. So thank you, thank you for that feedback. Very well said. And feedback is just that. You don't have to necessarily take it all. So the movie that we've chosen to cover today is probably one that's going to be a no-brainer to a lot of people. It's some yeah. low-hanging fruit. The Matrix it's Reloaded. Not really a, it's not really a controversial pick, but it is a pick that I'm sure our listeners will be excited to really see the inner workings of why wasn't it better. So let's dive in. Patrick, did you want to go through the high level of this film and its notes? Yeah, The Matrix Reloaded was released on May 15th, 2003 by Village Roadshow Pictures and Warner Brothers. It was written and directed by the Wachowskis, starring Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss, Lawrence Fishburne, Hugo Weaving, Jada Pinkett Smith, Gloria Foster, Monica Bellucci, and Lambert Wilson, budgeted at... $150 million, and it made $741 million at the box Huge. office, which was immense back then. This was 20 wow. years ago when I think at that point only two or three movies had even cracked a billion dollars globally. So this was, a, this was an enormous movie. Right. A lot of hype going into this one. Uh, I remember a lot of the promotional <laughs> yeah. aspects of the film. And of course, uh, when you attach a name like The Matrix, one of the all-time great franchises, right? Uh, perhaps. Or properties, I, you, I should say. Yes, properties, yes. Is it a great franchise? Possibly. Right. But <laughs> we'll I think talk more about that. So getting into why we chose this movie, we already mentioned this was definitely a no-brainer. There was no way that we were not going to cover this. And you mentioned the hype of this movie. I don't think you can understate it enough how much this movie was hyped. When the first Matrix came out in 1999, it was pretty much completely out of the blue. So original. I'll get back to that in a second. So fresh. So it really did come out of nowhere. General audiences had never seen anything like it. it mm -hmm. I think it was and still is as close to a perfect standalone movie as you can get. It was an instant classic. A lot of the elements in it were familiar to fans of like Hong Kong cinema, anime, cyberpunk, William Gibson, one of my all-time favorite writers, by the way. So anyone familiar with that stuff would have seen the influences 
in the matrix but the combination of all of those element elements really blew audiences away in 1999 it really did feel like it came out of nowhere it just blew up and it it became an immediate huge piece of pop culture and when people heard that we weren't getting just one but we were getting two sequels it was crazy hyped boom heads exploding it really was i mean it's faded a little bit from a little uh, uh, people, you know, people's memories, and I'm a little bit older than you, but this was again. I, I don't think we should understate it enough. This was like approaching the level of like the hype for the Phantom Menace. Maybe not quite on that level. People were so excited for this movie, including me. I was I was trying to think of like a list of like what are the most hyped movies of all time. Phantom Menace has got to be number one. Got to be there. Say, gotta be there. I would. Would you say Lord of the Rings? That's fair, especially with the sequels, and and you think of that series. Yeah. Uh, Avengers Endgame, absolutely. Massive. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say maybe not all of them, but at, at least the first and last Harry Potter movies, they were that big, the excitement for them. Right. And Definitely. I would put Matrix Reloaded on that list. I really would. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, and I'm talking about movies where literally everyone you know was excited to it and went to see it. Every single, maybe not every girl in, in my, I was in high school at this point, maybe not every girl in high school but every guy i knew was going to see this movie when it came out right and i i remember even the hype for just to put into context what what kind of hype are we looking at for phantom menace i remember that was also highly publicized people camping out in the theaters yeah i think like a year in advance or like having their setups so far like getting ready to just watch that film in anticipation seeing same levels of just fan just hype for matrix reloaded so people really do love this property people were camping out to buy tickets just like the phantom menace and by the time this movie came out the internet was fully formed so you you know everything that you could possibly read about it i was reading and looking back on it maybe the most banger movie trailer ever like, have you ever seen a movie trailer and you're just like, this is oh, going yeah. to be incredible. And I went back and watched the trailer. I got chills watching it. It was every bit as good as I remembered. So the Wachowskis really brought the house with this. You had the Animatrix, which was that nine part animated short film series that they released in the weeks before this movie. I think a couple of them came out on the website. A couple of them came out in the theater, jogging my memory a bit here. Mm-hmm. And then you had the video game Enter the Matrix that was released concurrently with this. And all of the above was supposed to tie in to the same level of hype. And it was supposed to tie into the same story. It was all supposed to come together where this movie's story kicked off. And it really did feel like The Matrix Reloaded was everywhere. Cell phone commercials, Gatorade commercials, the leather, the sunglasses, bullet time was on every commercial. It was in every music video. Every video game. Yes, you name it, it was there. And this is before YouTube. This movie and the first one caused countless Caucasian males to dress in leather and wear questionable looking sunglasses, <laughs> looking far less cool than they thought they did. I, uh, I, I will I, put it out there. If I'll put it out there. There might be a picture somewhere floating around where I dressed up as Neo for Halloween in school, but I don't know don't, if that photo will ever see the light of day. Don't be ashamed of it. And look, uh, I wanted a pair of Neo sunglasses at one point, and I remember think like finding out how much they cost and that's what put me off to it but it was probably for the best because the sunglasses have not aged well and then i think it's important to mention that this movie is the first movie in a two-part 
one big movie, you know, The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions, and the hype for this movie, it died off pretty quickly. And when the Re- when Revolutions came out six months later, I think people were far less excited. And the box office oh, numbers yeah. backed that up because as much money as as much money as this movie made, Revolutions only made about half as much. Oof, rough. So that's why we chose the movie. Let's get into the production history. Yeah, let's uh let's dive right in. So as we mentioned in the intro, the first Matrix that was a really unexpected, unprecedented runaway hit. While Keanu Reeves and Lawrence Fishburne, they're they're big names in Hollywood already. The Wachowskis were unknown and unproven. I mean, Warner Brothers had been reluctant to invest in a sci-fi action movie heavy on philosophical themes and previously unseen special effects, but producer Joel Silver was a huge believer and became their main supporter. So it was a modest $60 million budget, but it earned $467 million at the box office and won four Academy Awards. Huge uh, for the Wachowskis. So it became an instant classic. Obviously, Warner Brothers was hungry for a sequel. It was the first sequel to be filmed back-to-back since Back to the Future. Um, The movie was filmed largely at Fox Studios in Australia, and filming began on March 1st, 2001, and ended on August 21st, 2002, concurrently with the filming of the sequel, Revolutions. So that's uh, 276 consecutive days of shooting. So that's a lot of days on set. Uh, We're going to come back to that. Oh, yeah. The, the special effects budget alone was $100 million. That's a lot of wires. And it took 27 days to film the Burly Brawl sequence, uh, which was combined with motion capture and CGI. This would end up becoming possibly the most expensive action scene ever filmed for any movie, costing $40 million to make. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a steal at yeah. twice the price. Yeah, and, and that freeway chase looks so good because they actually constructed a 1.5-mile freeway on the old runways of it at a decommissioned naval airbase in Alameda. Oh, shout out to Alameda. General Motors supplied 300 old cars. Very, that money, was money, very well that spent. That was money well spent, for sure. Oh, yeah. That, that, that highway chase sequence took almost three months to shoot, longer than films entire sh- many films' entire shooting schedules. So they really put a lot of effort into capturing a great scale of action and trying to capture the same magic as the first. Marcus Chong was supposed to return his tank from the first film, but after an acrimonious falling out with the Wachowskis in the studio, his part was written out and the character was killed off off screen. The role of Seraph... So that's the Oracle's bodyguard was written specifically for Jet Li, who reportedly asked for too much money. So Colin Chow was eventually cast in the role. What a missed opportunity. Yeah, very, and, and especially when we think of the costuming and how much uh, Jet Li also has attached to Hong Kong films. Yes. That would have been fantastic. I, I read that and I was like, oh man, we could have seen Jet Li in this. That'd been awesome, and and Sir Sean Connery was originally picked to play the architect, but turned it down because he couldn't understand the concept of the movie. I don't, I don't get blame it. him. Yeah, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Connery mentioned this in an interview in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen 2003 DVD. Shouts out to that film that did not have a chance. We should absolutely cover that movie. And a yeah. quick tidbit about Connery: Connery had such a negative experience making League of Extraordinary Gentlemen that he just retired. Never appeared in another movie after that. He was like, "That's it, I'm done." 
Yeah. Uh, I, I I feel like, yeah, that's definitely one that we're going to have to put on the list. Fun yeah. one. A lot to de- dig in there. But going yeah. back on schedule, I had already mentioned the shooting schedule. Well, uh, well, DOP Bill Pope described that shooting schedule as mind-numbing and soul-numbing. Just let's, let, let that simmer. But yeah. first, earning nearly three-quarters of a billion dollars to the box office... This was the most commercially successful R-rated movie in the history at the time. So it was the third highest grossing film of 2003. Patrick, do you want to guess what the first two were? I do know it. It's Return of the King, the third Lord of the Rings, and actually Finding Nemo. Yeah, very different films on the spectrum. But they were they were uh, box office hitters. Yeah, I I think that Finding Nemo was that big, but yeah, it was. It was still during Pixar's heyday of yeah. only putting out banger after banger after banger. They were on a roll. Oh, we're going to cover a couple of Pixar movies yeah. for sure. Well, folks, this brings us uh, to this portion, the portion of the show where we really dig into the reasons. And I'm going to hand it off to Patrick to really uh, talk through our first reason for why it wasn't better. With pleasure. So I I deliberated over trying to number these and order these. Generally speaking, just for the listeners, we try to number the reasons why the movie wasn't better with most important to the least. And that's sometimes easier said than done. But I think in this case, the, the number one reason, the Wachowskis were given too much power. There's a lot to unpack here with that. So when the first Matrix was being developed, it was kind of a miracle that they were able to pull it off. The budget at $60 million was pretty modest, and it hadn't allowed for as many visual effects stuff as they eventually got, because in the studio's mind, they were unproven filmmakers. Pretty understandable. There was a surplus of creative focus, like a limit on, a limit on the budget kind of forced them to make tough decisions that probably made a better film. And they ended up, you know, they told the story that they wanted to tell. And in the end, you get The First Matrix is an amazing standalone film. It's a huge hit, makes a yeah. ton of cash. And the Wachowskis, in a response to this, they are given triple the budget and almost no limit. And the studio is basically like, okay, so let's hear hear about your plans for the sequel. Why not two? Reloaded in Revolutions to me, where they were almost excuses to use the budgets that were dropped on them. We get four hours. There's a lot of filler. We'll get to the storytelling choices in a later reason. But they had nowhere near the amount of discipline and limitations that allowed the first film to be the lean movie that it was. And that's why they're probably not as successful. And I think with this movie, you can really tell there was no one telling the Wachowskis no, or that's too much. They really bit off more than they can chew. This is the end product of what happens when you give experienced, inexperienced filmmakers too much creative control over a project. It's a common trend to blame the studios for sabotaging movies. But in reality, I believe it's more of a collaboration that results in a good movie. A director has to get their vision across, but not be complacent. All the fat has to be cut away without mercy. Like if there's too much in a movie, like when we covered the Dark Knight, we sort of we didn't agree on everything. But I I know you agree with me that there's just too much in the movie and it would have benefited from them just cutting stuff out. You get the same kind of thing here. Right. And we we touched a little bit of that going over the production history, the amount of soul-numbing hours put into being able to shoot scenes and being able to have such massive budgets on effects. And if there's anything that's common with films, it's not necessarily that more equals better. It's always about, of course, the quality. I like to think the quality versus necessarily the quantity. Yeah. In this case, it sounds like... 
in in this in this case it sounds like there was a bit too much that went into certain aspects of the film that didn't need to be as big or blown up as that needed to make a good film exactly and it's not even just the stuff in this movie you need to look at the larger context they were given the wachowskis were given all the creative power they shot reloaded and revolutions back to back they also wrote the screenplay while they also personally oversaw production on the nine animatrix short films and the video game Enter the Matrix, the story of which runs concurrently with the release of these two movies. Enter the Matrix was supposed to like bolster the plot of this movie. That took two and a half years to produce alone with a budget of 20 million, not including the marketing expense. And there's about an 30 minutes of movie footage that the Wachowskis wrote and directed for that video game. So that's all the stuff that they were trying to do to release in May of 2003. Yeah, I, I mean, think, it's, I think it's just too much. It's too much for them to handle. It's too much. I mean, I'm not going to complain. I actually did really like the Animatrix. It was introducing anime more to the mainstream, and being an anime fan, I can't complain. It also, I agree. Harken, it also harkens back to inspirations for the Matrix in itself. But like you said, that's a lot at one time. Anyone with work like it. I, I can't think of anyone that can handle that much and still be able to put out a good product um, across so many different things that they're trying to bring out into the market. Yeah, for sure. They definitely got a lot right with this movie. And I do want to talk about that a little bit. Like the, They know how to direct action. The freeway chase and the fight at the Chateau where Neo fights all those uh, guys with like the medieval weapons. Right, right. Those scenes are incredible to watch 20 years later, especially the latter. It's it's some of the best fight choreography I've ever seen in a movie. And I was uh, talking about this with uh, one of my friends. He made the observation that the freeway chase is so good that it actually ends up working against the movie because like the movie peaks and then quickly loses steam and it never gets to that height again. I don't uh, I can't because, I can't unhear that. Cuz it's too now. bloated. It it gets way too bloated afterwards. Or I mean yeah. even throughout. But how do you keep that momentum? It's got to be a lean film. It's tough. Think about the first movie. Each action sequence outdoes the one before it. So by the time you get to the climax, when they're rescuing Morpheus in the building, you're so amped up and ready for it. And here, the Wachowskis, they give you this in admittedly incredible action sequence midway through the movie, and they just don't they don't come close to outdoing it. The last, there's a couple action sequences after that, but they just kind of scaled down. And the Burly Brawl, you mentioned it, it costs $40 billion to make. Well, it looks like shit. Oh, yeah. Horrifying. Yeah. There's Horrifying. plenty of good CGI in this movie. but And if you remember, it got the CGI in that scene got criticized, criticized at the time. So it, right. it's not just a case of it aging poorly. It was, it was panned at the time. Now, you mentioned the lengthy shoot. You mentioned the director of photography making comments about it being right. soul soul crushing or something, you know, something yes. similar to that. So he actually made his name's Bill Pope, the director of photography. He made an appearance on the Team Deacons podcast in the summer of 2020. That's a podcast hosted by a legendary cinematographer, Roger Deacons and his wife. He described working on the sequels as a negative experience, saying Quote, everything that was good about the first experience was not good about the last two. We weren't free anymore. People were looking at you. There was a lot of pressure. In my heart, I didn't like them. 
I felt like we should have been going in another direction. There was a lot of friction and a lot of personal problems, and it showed up on screen, to be honest with you. It was not my most elevated moment, nor was it anyone else's. The Wachowskis had this damn book by Stanley Kubrick that said, actors don't do natural performances until you wear them out. So let's go to take 90. I want to dig Stanley Kubrick up and kill him, end quote. <laughs> yeah, uh, fair. I just want to say Stanley Kubrick notorious for driving actors in his in his films crazy like notorious well it sounds like the wachowskis were trying to channel stanley kubrick on this movie and i don't think it benefited anyone no it really just i mean i think pope's comments on that podcast really do support our reason here that it's just too ambitious of a project for the wachowskis to get a firm handle on he had a couple other quotes. I, if you're interested in this movie, it's definitely worth a listen, that podcast episode. it's Again, it's called Team Deacons. And, mm-hmm. I don't, well, you just look at the context of The Matrix and the Wachowskis as a whole. Are they actually good filmmakers? Like, Anton, when was the last time you were like, oh, man, I can't wait to see the Wachowskis' latest movie? It's always if it's going to be a Matrix film. And as we're saying now, it may, it doesn't always, doesn't always hit. No. Yeah. But when we kind of think of it in terms of that, when when we really do say like like listeners, when we say we're not excited about the um other Wachowski films or questioning them as good filmmakers, it's also in that same context of is that part of the reason why giving them too much power creates a lesser film? And it seems that in the case of when they do have more power and they do have that creative reign and reign uh, and and budget to do to really um, execute on their vision, it was not exactly the film that uh, it, it wasn't exactly a great film. So that's why, of course, we have to put into question: Are they even good? I don't think they are. Right. I but think they're probably. I- but they had really great ideas to create the first one. Yes, a hundred percent. We mentioned some of the reasons, like the limited budget. The first look, the the first one's lightning in a bottle. Right. It it was so many perfect things coming together and just working as this standalone story. Speaking of the storytelling, number two, the number two reason of why wasn't it better is you got to look at the storytelling. Yes, you do. I think uh, let's let's go back. Think of that first film in the series. Let's go to the ending. It was such a huge, like, fuck yeah ending in cinematic history you got new metal playing he flies away um at the time it's just a like it, it's a send-off and a great way to end that movie it's and one of the it, best it, movie it, endings it leaves ever you it leaves you just feeling the same way that uh neo is and that sky's the limit in terms of where that film is uh is going to go and it stems from one simple thing they don't need to exist the full story was told in the Matrix, and from then on, all we get is scrambling to fill a script and self-indulgence. The underlying issue here is that the reloaded, or th- that reloaded, hinges on revolutions to complete its story. And you're probably saying, uh, "Duh, Anton, that's how all the first parts of the first uh, the f- of a two-part movie work." And to that, uh, I say yes and no. Most good sequels won't rely on the sequel to finish the story it started. Right, um, Patrick. I, I I feel like uh, you're you're uh, yes. passionate about this. Is there is there a film that comes to mind? 
I want to look at the Empire Strikes Back, which is a very famous example of a, the second movie of a trilogy. Oh, and by the way, before I mention this, is is the Matrix is it actually a trilogy when the second and third movie are supposed to be one movie? I don't know. Fair. I I would say it's still it that that it's still considered a trilogy. Yeah, I probably just overthought that. Yeah. So the Empire Strikes Back. So the story is Luke realizing his destiny as a Jedi. Han Solo is trying to save himself from Jabba the Hutt and like the bounty hunters that he sent after him. And Darth Vader is trying to capture Luke. All So that's three plot lines. All of these plot lines get established within, within the first 20, 30 minutes of the movie. By the end of the movie, all three of those plot lines are completed. Now, you can make the case that like, well, they all like the heroes fail and, you know, whatever. And Vader doesn't complete like Han gets captured by Boba Fett. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luke turned, you know, Luke abandons his training to go to uh, Bespin, a.k.a. Cloud City, to save his friends. And then he ends up getting his hand cut off because he loses the duel to Vader. And then Vader tries and fails to convert Luke to the dark side. Right. But those and you can make the case that, well, those plot threads get left open. But they do get concluded. The ones that get started in the movie get concluded. For The Matrix Reloaded, you have Neo is trying to figure out his role as the one. Agent Smith is now a virus, and he's like infecting The Matrix and taking it over. And then the machines are starting their attack on Zion. And then you know Neo's having the dreams, and he's trying to prevent Trinity from dying. You have the whole mess of the politics and Zion and gaining access to the source because they have to find the key you see we're we're quickly getting lost here that's getting a lot of plot threads trying to now trying to build out more to continue to push the philosophical aspects which then create a, a weave of different points that want to be made and it just becomes convoluted right yeah yeah and then you have you have all these new characters that they introduce and then they sideline a character like morpheus now morpheus still has plenty to do in this movie but he doesn't really have a story arc he doesn't know and he's just kind and, of and along for the fan, ride fantastic and, and and when you think of well at least when i like to think of his character in the first it's uh he he was like neo's obi-wan yeah and what happens to obi-wan in the reloaded obi-wan just wants to party that's yes he does want to attend the the cave rave (laughs) all the plot points that we were just mentioning only two of them actually get wrapped up the the key maker one that gets wrapped up and then trinity dying neo ends up pulling the bullet out of her right oh yeah so i think what what the wachowskis got right about the matrix's storytelling the first movie was they had an interesting story that weaved in some philosophy, right? You had cool action for the people that just wanted to see shit blow up. And then you had a great story for people that wanted to listen. And you had some ideas mixed in for people that wanted to think. But it didn't go too heavy into the, into that. What you had wrong with this movie and the third movie is they tried to get really deep with the philosophy. And then they tried to wrap a story around that. And the result was you have lots of dialogue. And I'm talking monologues here forced interactions to make these philosophical themes get presented it's just not a very cohesive story at the end of the first movie neo becomes the one he gains superpowers 
he apparently also gains the ability to jump inside agents and explode them. And then he just never does this again. They kind of nerfed him to borrow a video right. game term. And of, of course, it was a great way to set up Neo, but maybe there was some power scaling that needed to be done in the Reloaded to make it believable. But I like to think that uh, it was probably just poor storytelling. It's the Superman syndrome thing, right? Where he can do pretty much everything. He can fly. He doesn't really even need to fight, but they don't really bring it up again. And they put him in all these situations where he has to fight and chase scenes. They kind of dumb him down a little bit. Right. And even if they they didn't even really explore like oh it's being able to find like one the the one mode or the zen or like a a, a, no. a level of being or understanding that allows him to tap into these powers it's just n- never addressed it's just whoa it's it's neo it's the dude it really does feel long too you get a lot of scenes dragged out I don't think it was necessary to spend that much time in Zion in fact I would say. Maybe people, some people might feel differently. Anything outside of the Matrix is just not interesting. Like Zion is dreary, depressing. You have all the extra characters that get added. We'll talk about a little, some of them a little bit later. But I mean, you just, I'm probably going to hit on this a couple times. I think you, you mentioned this to me at one point too, in the lead up to this recording, where it feels like there's really one good movie in Reloaded and Revolutions. There's a lot of exposition and there's a lot of filler in these two movies. And you can read this theory online, too. And there's there's some kind of fan edit that combines elements from the two movies. I've never actually seen it. Oh, that but sounds I, like it could be a good time. I, I, I deliberately try to avoid fan edits. I, I generally don't care for them, but that's an interesting one. This kind of reminded me, you know, the Hobbit movies? Which is based off a very short book. <laughs> yes. This ha- they have a similar issue where you can see a right. lot of quality issues with those unnecessarily long action scenes, too many characters shoehorned into a plot that didn't require it. Yeah, I mean, it's when we think of why, in terms of like the strength of like the first film, what were some elements of that that really made a great that lean storytelling, that careful editing, that implicit world building, or those original effects. I mean just completely demolished by studios demand that there should be a trilogy instead of a duology and as uh or was originally planned and you could cut out a lot of the fat there uh we already talked about that the story had too much off of uh too many long moments within the films and doesn't solve it doesn't solve all the issues such as the awful cgi but the storytelling is stronger by far when you cut out the unnecessary exposition by characters uh, who we really don't care about, um, no. just just trim down the action scenes to the essentials. Just forget about the rave sequence. You end up with a decent sequel. But all of those scenes, too much, too bloated, too long. The one good movie thing in the two films really, really got me thinking. And I found this I found this quote from Josh Whedon of all people that I think is very telling. Now he was talking about the first film and how it was one of his favorite films. Quote, "It is storytelling that is so unexpected and brilliant as to seem inevitable, and that's the best kind. I wanted to put down my pencil and back away until I learned how to write when I saw this movie. Structurally, it's insanely sound. Everything they're doing is visually ecstatic and philosophically it could be studied for centuries." It contains every aspect of modern life and religion and philosophy and knows it. And they're doing something that is deliberately very heady. But at the same time, when asked what it, 
what is this movie about? Their answer was, it's about Kung Fu versus robots. If it was just <laughs> that, it would be on this list. But it's that and everything else, end quote. That's a, it's a brilliant way of putting it about the first movie. None of that is true about this sequel. No, not and at all. You mentioned the bad CGI. We touched on it a little bit, but I took notes on some of the stuff that was good and bad. Like The stuff during the car chase, I think, is good. The repeated shot of Trinity falling, it looks like something from an older movie. Some of the shots of Zion looks like PlayStation 2 graphics. And when the power plant explodes at the end, seems like that was a rush job. There, well, I think it, it's important to think about context here as well. There was already great examples of strong CGI when done subtly or done well. Like It doesn't necessarily need to look dated. But no. when we think of maybe where that CGI was invested in and trying to keep up with a very aggressive, uh, a very, very aggressive like shooting schedule, we can see where those things got left off. And funny enough, if we think about the context of when the film was released and we say that uh, Zion was like PlayStation 2 graphics, that probably was a compliment back then. Well, think about that, though. 2003, we have that third Lord of the Rings movie. Most of the CGI in that holds up really well. Right, right, exactly. So in the context of that, when we invest CGI in the right ways, yes. it looks yes. fantastic as supplementary, but not as the key focus or where the, sh or where the if you don't have enough care, it can look very bad and dated. When it comes to CGI, age, age does not matter. To your point, it really doesn't. Right. Also, 2003, I had forgotten this. That was the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, which has great CGI. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. I think that there's there, there's always going to be knocking films practical versus CGI. And I think that CGI effects are fantastic for film. It's a great way to help supplement the storytelling. But if it becomes too much of a focus to bloat the film, and especially when during a very aggressive shooting schedule, it's one of those aspects where we could easily see things just falling through the cracks. And we, we definitely saw it in this film. Well said. The third reason for why wasn't this better, this is related to the first two reasons. Number three is the plot. Anton, try to explain the plot to me. All right. I'll try to explain. Um... So the plot of the second film, Neo is on the journey of actualizing himself as the one while finding the right path to freeing humanity from the machines. And I want to say that's like, that should be the core concept of the plot. But there's so much that I'm missing out by just saying that, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, you started it well, and then you get you get into the, the machines or sending all the sentinels to wipe out Zion. I think the, pro <laughs> the, the right, problem... Right, because there's the more. There's also, um, the plot is about also identifying how the Matrix was created and being able to, being able to identify like how what how miss how agent smith is a works in the inner workings of the matrix in itself i mean there's there's kind of a lot there there's a lot of problems i, I don't know if there's necessarily plot holes but it definitely gets confusing the biggest issue i had with it is that it plays out like a wild goose chase 
First, it's find the Oracle. Then it's find the Merovingian. Then it's find the Keymaker. Then it's find the Source. Neo's just getting assignments given to him like he's along for the ride. That's not even including the presence of Agent Smith, or I guess he's not an agent by this point. He's like a he's like a negative copy of Neo. Right. It, it, it almost, But his presence almost feels like a side quest. And then, of course, it, it, his presence and his purpose eventually comes to a head in the third film, but you don't know that at the time, so it almost feels forced. I obviously went back because I'm a total nerd, and I read about like what actually was Smith. How did he survive in the first film and, co- and, and you know get to the point where he could copy himself? But do, do they adequately explain that? No, absolutely not. <laughs> okay, I, I didn't think so. It's it's also they could have just used a different villain. His presence is like a constant reminder of the first movie. I'm like, oh yeah, remember when he was in the first movie and it was better. I mean, conceptually, I like the idea of where they were going with the character. If it's almost like if Neo is supposed to be a stand-in for like this Christ-like figure, then Smith is the Antichrist. That's fair. But that's fair. But in execution, there was so much going on that you couldn't necessarily determine who was like you said what was the who was the right villain to look at and then in terms of how they actually carried out the storyline it was hard to determine that that was smith's role until i would say like you kind of get it more in the third film but it it, it just wasn't very clearly it wasn't very clearly um portrayed and just written in no and there are some Actually, I, I said there weren't plot holes, but I think there were some. Like Bane, that guy that gets assimilated by Smith. So we go from that scene, and it cuts to him. He's like cutting himself with a knife, and he presumably right. tries to kill Neo. But there's a lot missing in between. Like, how did he adjust to arriving in Zion? I don't know, whatever. Some of the other stuff I thought didn't make sense, or that kind of contradicted the first film. You already, we've already touched on neo's powers being nerfed but if you remember in the first movie morpheus tells neo that everyone who has fought an agent has died right they make the agents out to be these big scary things multiple people fight agents here and survive so that kind of contradicted that various characters like trinity morpheus that guy counselor haman who i kind of liked he was the guy played by uh, anthony zerby pretty good character Mm -hmm. actor they make numerous references to all the quote extraordinary things Neo has done, which they don't really detail. Now you sort of you get the you get the um, implication that he has all these superpowers, but then you get people like Commander Locke who seem to not believe in Neo. They don't really explore that. I, right. I don't know. It's. I mean, I, I mean, this it's it's all very much like again. I feel like this actually has a lot to touch on the production history and how things were released, yeah. and then also yeah. it touches on the plot. So one, I already touched on if Neo is a stand-in for a Christ-like figure, he has his disciples and followers that yeah will that believe in him and his abilities and the amazing things that he's done. You need to have the doubters. True. Uh, In terms of the extraordinary things that like Neo did that is implied or that we haven't seen, that's where I feel like there was a lot of room in the releases for like the Animatrix, Enter the Matrix, for a lot of things to be one would assume plug in those holes. But that 
really also wasn't the that was not the case when we actually think of the content of Enter the Matrix or um, the Animatrix. It helped build more of the world of this like very like of of what occurred in the film or like what occurs in this film universe, but nothing that really helped move along the plot or helped to really understand Neo better. No. Speaking of the world, I know we're we're gonna plow ahead here because I know we're on a bit of a time crunch. The the Temple of Doom sweat-soaked cave rave, it's one of the dumbest things I've ever seen in a major movie. Oh, it was man. bad then, it was bad now. You kind of do have to respect Warner Brothers for including something that's, I would say, two shots away from being an orgy in a $150 million movie, because <laughs> we're probably never going to see something like that again. No. I, I have in my notes here, the kid is very annoying. It's like one of the Lost Boys from Hook. I mentioned Anthony Zerby's character, Council, Counselor Haman. He was a good character. Commander Locke was a proper dick. Oh, yeah. Neo meeting with the Oracle is where the plot really starts to go sideways. The The dialogue is it's pretty hard to follow. The Merovingian scene, I almost fell asleep watching this the other night. It doesn't help that he's a secondary villain. He just goes on and on. He likes to drink wine. He likes to... In, and stuff but none of all of this pales in comparison to the architect's monologue it deserves all of the hate that it's gotten over the years oh yeah it's definitely. it's a gigantic exposition dump and it's just techno babble bullshit they were trying to write in something that made sense to explain the universe to try to explain what's occurring while still having layers of philosophical uh philosophical intelligence or just trying to write a smart film quite frankly it 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 failed it's it's the exact moment where the studio should have intervened and told the wachowskis this is a terrible idea you're going to lose half the audience this is it that's this is that's the part where they should they just like you guys need to fix this also I caught this in the rewatch. The architect tells Neo that if he chooses to save Trinity, it would cause a system crash in the Matrix that would kill everybody connected. That <laughs> never, was just it never, never brought up. I remember. No. I saw that too in the rewatch. Uh, that's never, great never brought up again. Out. Oh, that's so funny. I guess he he could oh, have man. been lying. You know, he could have been bluffing. But it's like that's a pretty serious thing to say to him. What did you think about the acting in this movie? There was, uh, I, I would think it wasn't the best acting. No, but it wasn't the best acting. But I do have to give due to the characters that did a great job. I think Lawrence Fishburne, every scene that he's in, he's a great, a fantastic actor. job. Yeah, yeah. It, this is um, certainly not a movie you go to expecting Oscar-winning acting. I, but I was particularly unimpressed by all of the supporting characters, save maybe Counselor Haman and um, what's her name? I did like Jada Pinkett Smith. She was pretty good right. in this movie. She doesn't have a lot to do. She has a lot more to do in the video game. I got, but I got from a lot of the character actors, particularly the ones in the Matrix, I got a lot of like Star Wars prequel vibes where you could tell that they were getting the same exact monotone level direction from the Wachowskis. There is a building. There is a floor where no elevator leads. We're to a door that leads to the source. <laughs> I, I know because I must know. It is my purpose. Oh, the same reason terrible. we're all here. That's kind of all you can say about the plot. It, it ends on a cliffhanger. 
the cliffhanger wasn't well liked at the time. And, you know, that's kind of is what it is, but that's it for as far as the reasons. Did you like this movie, Anton? At the end of the day, like, no, I did not like this movie. (laughs) I even remember after seeing it in theaters when I was younger and just thinking, just being very disappointed uh, because it had taken what was an amazing first film and didn't even, for me, it wasn't even average. For me, it took something and completely just made it bloated. It was what was once a very well put together, cruel concept, um, then turned into a bit of a behemoth of trying to make itself more complex and try to answer more philosophical questions and put in more CGI and thoughts than what was needed. And for me, like I, I was just very thoroughly disappointed. And even now, like having rewatched it, there were some redeeming qualities that I can respect. And but at the same time, like I just was not a huge fan. What do you give it as a rating? Uh, personally, I have to give it. Uh, a, I have to give it a, a D, D to D minus. Uh, wow, you really didn't yeah. like it. Yes, I really, I really didn't like it, and we're we're not we're never gonna review Matrix Revolutions, um, but Revolutions no. was a solid to me. Revolutions was a solid F. Um, <laughs> Damn. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ma- to me, Re- Matrix Revolutions was a solid F. The way that th- and that was because that was the if that was supposed to be a send off to the series, that's just sad. When I think of all the potential that the or that matrix that the matrix had as a property and how when people say wow matrix that's such a great series they're really only referring to the first one and so i have to really look at yeah yeah. i've never really heard anyone successfully defend these two sequels right i've heard people say like they like things about it and i did too i'm actually i think i like this movie a lot more than you did i give it a c minus okay I think it's the first half of a very long movie that unfortunately has a much worse second half. Like I would give Revolutions a D, a D rating. That's mm-hmm. obviously not very good. It's, in fact, it's bad. But I thought this movie, as an action movie, I think it has some really good stuff in it. You just have the problem of the third movie and the convoluted story. It's one of the most extreme hype to results ratios, I think of any movie we're going to cover on this podcast in terms of where the hype was and what people actually thought of it. The expectations were not high for revolutions. I'll say that that's, that's it. This, this, the hype for this movie was so great and people were so disappointed by it that we mentioned it in the intro, how much less money revolutions made. Nobody cared when it came out six months later. Nobody was excited yeah. for it. I did enjoy rewatching it, both of them kind of, though. I really enjoyed the nostalgia mm-hmm. of it. I thought the soundtrack aged pretty nicely. It's got some kick-ass music in it. But yeah, apart, you mentioned it, apart from the connection to the first movie, these movies are, they don't have much of a legacy. And it kind of got me thinking about the Star Wars prequels. They are every bit as hollow and forgettable as these, but we're still talking about them. They're a lot more fun to hate. Yeah, definitely. And like you pointed out, we're not going to be covering the Matrix Revolutions. Nobody was excited for that by the time it came around. No, and I feel like if we do that, 
it'll we'll end up creating a bloated overexplained mess because we're just going to be going over the same exact things again except this time they did it twice it would create a system crash and kill everyone connected to the matrix yeah maybe we won't revisit that we'll see (laughs) well that's it we have a couple ideas for what movie we're going to do next i'm going to pick american gangster though Ooh, nice you haven't seen that in a while have you it's been a long time but that's a that's that that's actually uh that's a fun film and i'm excited to really uh bite into i'm re- i'm really excited to bite into that one awesome well we'll be back next week with another edition of why wasn't it better i'm patrick darms and i'm anton paras <laughs>